0: This episode of The Vast Majority is brought to you by Ovid.tv. Bringing together films from leading independent film distributors, Ovid.tv is the streaming service for social issue, documentary, and independent films largely unavailable anywhere else. With over 500 titles available, Ovid.tv offers documentaries on all the crucial topics of today. On the subject of war, the Academy Award nominee The Kill Team is a must-watch. This brutally honest documentary goes behind closed doors to tell the story of Specialist Adam Winfield, a 21-year-old infantryman in Afghanistan who attempted, with the help of his father, to alert the military to heinous war crimes his platoon was committing. The New York Times calls the film devastating. From now until October 25th, you can save 50% off the regular monthly subscription price. Just head over to www.ovid.tv. That's www.ovid.tv. Sign up with the coupon code JACOBIN at checkout, and you will get Ovid.tv for just $3.50 per month for three months.
1: Hello. Welcome to The Vast Majority. I'm Jacobin Managing Editor Micah Utrecht. The question of war and how to oppose it is obviously a central question for socialists to grapple with. That's why the new print issue of Jacobin is on war and imperialism. It's called War is a Racket. The issue is pretty wide-ranging, covering everything from how socialists have thought about political strategy and opposing war, the devastating human costs of war, what it means that the United States has 800 military bases around the world, and the Department of Defense's history of exchanging use of military equipment for favorable Hollywood portrayals. For example, did you know that the military helped rewrite the script? of The Adventures of Mary-Kate and Ashley, The Case of the United States Navy Adventure, in 1997. I did not know this. We held a release party for War as a Racket in Chicago with two people who appear in the issue. Rory Fanning, a former U.S. Army Ranger in Afghanistan who became a war resistor, who's profiled in the issue by our assistant editor Alex Press, and Sarah Lazar, a web editor at In These Times Magazine, who wrote about where the five frontrunner Democratic presidential candidates stand on issues of war and imperialism? We recorded the conversation live and presented here. Please buy a copy of War is a Racket if you aren't already a subscriber. A link to the Jacobin online store where you can buy it in the show notes. Our office is right by an elevated train line, so you'll hear a little bit of the train going by during the recording, and you'll also hear a reference or two and maybe like a shake or two and the sound of a collar uh, from Rory's dog, Henry, who was sitting under the table and eventually wandering among the audience during our discussion. Thank you for coming tonight. My name is Micah Utrecht. I'm the managing editor of Jacobin. We're going to start with uh, Rory. So, Rory, this is a a full profile of you. You have a really compelling story. Can you just start with uh, how you ended up being an army ranger in Afghanistan.
2: Uh, sure. Um, first, I'd like to say thanks for having me. It's a huge honor to be able to come out here, talk about uh, some of the work I've been doing over the years. Um, I feel like this issue is really urgent. Um, you can't help but read through this and just want to go uh, march on the streets. Um, certainly not endorse any of the presidential candidates who are leading us into war. Um so I will, I, I go back to nine eleven. you know, I had just graduated from college, uh, I had a huge amounts of student debt that I had to pay back, um, I didn't really know what I was going to do with my life uh, at 21, uh, I saw those planes hit the Twin Towers, and you know, my initial instinct was, uh-oh, um, what what's going to happen now? Um, but there was a big part of me that wanted to help prevent uh, another 9/11. Um, I didn't really have a, much of a worldview at the time, um, despite being a great books major. Um, and I, yeah, I, yeah, I was still looking for a coherent, coherent worldview. Um, I didn't want a job, uh, you know, in a cubicle. Um, so I decided that it made a lot of sense for me to. Uh, do my part to help prevent another 9-11. So I initially had an instinct that if I was going to sign up for the military, um, like everybody who signs up for the military, you kind of are less of a human being and more of a piece of equipment. And I wanted to become the most expensive piece of equipment possible, um, so I wanted to get the most amount of training possible, and so I decided I was going to try and join the U.S. Army Rangers. Um, so I signed up.
1: And can you explain what the Rangers are for those of us who aren't really aware?
2: Yeah. The, the, the Rangers claim to specialize in seizing airports and also, um, kind of backing up, uh, the Delta force, um, Navy seals and other special forces units. Um, you know, when they went and, I don't know if you guys remember Jessica Lynch, but when they went and raided to get Jessica Lynch out, we were kind of on the front lawn. Um, you know, it's just, Anyway, that's kind of the stuff that they do. Uh, if you've ever seen the movie Black Hawk Down, I think you know they try to portray what it's like to be a ranger um, in that movie. And that was actually one of the things that kind of inspired me. I was a victim of that propaganda, um, I'll admit. Um, and so I signed up for the U.S. Army Rangers. The training was um, difficult, I would say. A lot of food and sleep depri- deprivation. But I think ultimately the goal of all that training was to kind of strip all critical thinking skills from my, my brain and just learn how to say yes. Um, because, you know, being a critical thinker doesn't work very well when ordered into a machine gun nest, and if you stop to think about it, you're like, oh, probably not. Um, so just, just learn how to say yes, and you can be a good army ranger, I think. Um, and so before I knew it, I found myself in Afghanistan, Uh, like Alex says in the piece, um, I was expecting bullets to be whizzing by my head when I landed, um, in Afghanistan. And, uh, I was really shocked, uh, when I woke up the morning after landing and I found, um, a lot of quiet. I found a lot of poverty. Um, I saw one woman in particular, uh, going, I just remember this memory vividly in my brain, going out to gather firewood, and she was, uh, uh, when we got back from our first kind of mission, this is my puppy, he's 14 months, 14 weeks old, and no one was around to babysit him, so that's why he's here, and um, so I saw this one woman going out to collect firewood, and when we got back after this three-hour kind of introductory mission, um, this woman was still gathering firewood. And I asked our uh, translator what the woman was doing, and she said, "Oh, this woman does this every day. This is how she cooks her fire at night." You know, there's. I, I remember the smell of rotting vegetables. I remember the the look of kids with bare feet running behind us looking for. Um, you know, even though we had grenade launchers and machine guns asking for candy. Um, Russian uh, aircraft kind of littering the landscape. You know, we weren't the first to occupy Afghanistan. The Russians had done it before us. I think we kind of um, were part of that too. And, and You literally
1: saw the Russian aircraft like, Russian. litter around you. Did that give anybody any pause about...
2: Russian uh, tanks, Russian aircraft. I mean, they kind of litter the landscape in Afghanistan. So uh, I
1: guess these dumbass Soviets weren't good enough to win in Afghanistan, yeah. but the American soldiers will be different?
2: Yeah, them. well, it, American exceptionalism, yeah, I think. I so. American chauvinism was... Uh, an, um, and I think there's a certain element that it still refuses to kind of believe that we're going to be defeated in Afghanistan. Um, so we went out on missions um, I don't think our chain of command had any idea what we were trying we were going to actually do in the country nobody spoke the language we had next to no understanding of the culture i don't think anybody cared to know about the culture um, we were just I think Uh, out looking for blood. What I didn't know at the time was that by the time I had arrived in Afghanistan, uh, the Taliban had essentially surrendered um, after the initial Air Force bombing campaign uh, and a few special forces missions. They said, we want no part of this. But that was generally unacceptable to the politicians at home. You know, they had to, number one, justify uh, continuing and looking you know cold war era military budgets of up to you know a trillion dollars a year you can 't do that uh, if you don 't have uh, an uh, an enemy um, and also I think the politicians wanted blood for what happened in nine eleven on a certain level um, but mostly, I just think we were looking for reasons to stay in uh, in in war and so The Taliban had surrendered, but we went out and we started looking for things to do and causing trouble. Uh, We saw a school uh, and we said, you know, that school looks like a perfect place for a military base. Let's go tell those kids that we're going to cancel classes and we are going to use that as a staging ground for all of our military operations from here on out. And the kids said, well, for how long? And, well, as long as we'd like. And it was kind of in the middle of nowhere, and we would see military-age kids from Afghanistan walking by and not showing the proper level of deference. Um, and we would grab the two guys or three guys, put one in one room, another in the other room, and the guy sitting alone in a room would hear a gunshot, and we'd go in there, and say, is there anything you'd like uh, to tell us now? And the guy, of course, thinking that his friend had been killed. Um, and this is how we would get information um, in, in Afghanistan. And we would get rockets dropped on our camp from time to time, and we would re- never really know where it came from. It's a very mountainous kind of Lord of the Rings environment in Afghanistan. It's really a stunning country in so many ways. Um, but we wouldn't necessarily know where that rocket came from, so we would set up, send out artillery rounds out um, in that general vicinity over there, and they would land in, on cows, and they would land on villages, and um, you know we we now know that as many as as much as eighty to ninety percent of everyone who has killed been killed since nine eleven has been innocent civilians, um, and I was beginning to feel like I was doing the last thing from making the world more safe and preventing another 9-11, but I was actually creating the conditions for more uh, attacks like 9-11. And we know that has panned out. Between 1980 and 2001, there were 300 suicide bombs around the world. But between 2001 and 2012, there has been over 2,500 suicide bombs around the world 90% of those aimed at the U.S. or U.S. interests. And that 1980 to 2001 figure, only 10% was aimed at the U.S. and U.S. interests. So the world is a far more dangerous place as a result of uh, the U.S. wars, the occupations, um, and all of that military spending. So I decided that I was going to um, not participate in this anymore. I just felt like a bully, and I didn't want to be a part of killing so many innocent people, Taking, storming into people's houses in the middle of the night, throwing bags over random people's heads, who um, we would later find out was just, Part of a village dispute and didn't you know the the landlord didn't like the guy so the guy the landlord would say I think that guy's a terrorist and we'd go in throw a bag over their head and take them off to a place like Guantanamo or the like and um, this happened time and time again um, us being nothing more than pawns in village disputes most of the time um, but we really didn't care it was I think more of just a, a they called it collared you know and throwing you know we just wanted to get as many people you know in prison and interrogated and um and this is just not what i signed up for
1: you're like casting a wide net basically to whoever would maybe if you interrogated 20 people you'd find one person who gave you useful info- intel or what was the thinking
2: i think yeah i think that's a nice way of putting it casting a wide net i think a lot of it was just vindictive i think you know we know that did that dog get away <laughs>
1: Oh, he's over here.
2: Okay. All right. You guys pay attention to him. If he starts eating anything, uh, just, just let me
1: know. You mentioned feeling uh, unease at all of this. I mean, I would assume that if you're a ranger, you're this sort of, like, elite unit, right? I would assume that most people would not just be, like, in the middle of Afghanistan, like, oh, you know, maybe this isn't so good after all. Like, I would assume the indoctrination into, like, you as this sort of, like, being on the front lines of fighting for freedom around the world... Uh, all of that would be very intense and you make it sound sort of simple like oh I realized that I wasn't doing that.
2: Yes not only was the mission kind of morally bankrupt and just uh, depressing and sad um, there you know we have this image of what the special forces is in you know movies like Black Hawk Down or all those other movies and it's you know just a lot of people you know jacked up on testosterone um, and not all that connected with what's going on you know in in a lot of ways and i i I was just it was it's really deflating on a certain level um because there wasn't anything didn't really feel noble you know in any kind of way and um so yeah it wasn't like the movies
1: and so you became a conscientious objector in afghanistan right
2: yeah, well, war resistor is kind of the term I like. I think conscientious objector kind of ties religion to it a little bit. And yes, I was at the time more religious, but uh, now I kind of like to label myself uh, political because ultimately I was saying this is ridiculous. I, we're we're bullies out here. We I had the, I didn't know the Taliban had surrendered at that time. I didn't know we were killing mostly innocent people. I assumed that, but uh, this is this is like a this is just a, a thing that anybody religious or non-religious would kind of. Push back against. You I saw think.
1: what was happening, and then you like developed based on what you saw in opposition to the war, rather than, like you said, religious principles beforehand or something. So, what right. did that look like? Being in the middle of Afghanistan and and becoming a war resistor there.
2: um Yeah, it was was an interesting. Although I w- I will say that my chaplain was like uh, in Black Hawk Down, and he said God understands just wars, and this is certainly a just war. Um, so, what did what did it look like? Well. Um, I had came back to the U.S. and said, I'm not going back, and they said, you're going back anyways. I said, no, I'm not. They said, yes, you are. I wasn't ready to go to jail at that point, um, and so I went, uh, without a weapon, and I was in the supply chain, and, but I was kind of cast amidst all these guys, kind of just waiting for them to kind of, like, look for a reason to shoot me in the back for, uh, 90 days, and, um, it didn't happen, um, but I really started connecting at that point with Afghans at that time, you know, looking into their, I, like, I, I started connecting way more with Afghans than I did with those, the people actually in my own unit. Um, but yeah, so it was, you know, I, when they'd all sleep inside, they did sleep inside the schoolhouse and I would sleep outside in the snow and they would go kill a goat and, you know, I wouldn't get to eat it. And, you know, there, uh, <clears throat> I was kind of bigger at the time, you know, I, like, I knew that, They only understood kind of like strength. So I like lifted weights all the time. So I didn't get a lot of direct stuff at me, um, but I got a lot of like behind my back and kind of like this real anxious kind of thing. Like maybe someone who's been in prison waiting for like a shank in the back or something. Um, So that's kind of what it felt like for about 90 days as I kind of like tried to survive.
1: When I first heard your story, when I read it in the profile, I assumed that you were the only person. Who had these feelings, these these uh, second thoughts about being in the military, and second thoughts about what you were doing in Afghanistan? But you've said that actually there were a lot of soldiers, even among the Rangers, who similarly had doubts, didn't like what they were doing. Uh, not just that like the work was shitty, but they had real serious political reservations about. What they were doing in Afghanistan, right?
2: Yeah, I think a lot of soldiers were expecting bullets to be whizzing by their heads and getting in these massive firefights and just doing something against an enemy. I mean, there's, there, you know, there are no uniforms in Afghanistan. You're, you don't know who you're looking for, um, and it just really felt like people were grasping at straws. And this was also deflating to many other soldiers. Uh, but there is a huge level of indoctrination that is, um, you know you know, number one, you know, there is this sense of other, you know, even though you are kind of pissed off at the situation, you see these people as less than, you know, the Afghans as less than. Um, So I think they they stuck with it because they felt superior in a certain way, Um, but there's also this element of, like, you cannot abandon your ranger buddy, the guy to your left and right, and if you do, that's the ultimate sin against your masculinity, you know? And I think the military really kind of reinforces all the kind of You know, tropes on, you know, and and, and a lot of kids who haven't developed a worldview and looking for community and, you know, are subject to all of the propaganda, which I think most people would be who are stuck in that situation, um, refuse to kind of push back against that. And even if they see something bad, they're kind of worried about uh, the group and, you know, how the group will respond if you decide to stand up for what you believe in.
1: So after those 90 days, you came back to the U.S.? I came back to,
2: yes, and I was expecting to go to jail, um, but they kind of didn't know what to do with me because there were no war resistors within the Rangers at that time. And I was washing dishes, absorbing the ridicule, the chain of command, you know, doing all these kind of baking cakes. Um, But there's two people that kind of stuck with me uh, during that time. Uh, That was Pat Tillman and Kevin Tillman. They actually respected what I did. I don't know if you guys know Pat Tillman, but he gave up three points.
1: Yeah, can you explain who he was i mean at the time it was a huge story right
2: yeah the first time i met or saw pat tillman was on the cover of people magazine they did a profile of him going into the military despite him not wanting to be profiled
1: He was a football player for the arizona cardinals right
2: yes and they had just offered him a 3.6 million dollar contract and um he turned that down to join the military which made him kind of like instantly famous even though he was really good he was also very good uh, but he kind of embraced. He was also deflated. He also didn't feel like this is what he had signed up for. He also felt like he was making the world more dangerous. Did he tell you that in Afghanistan? Yeah, in more or less words. Um, you know, I would be doing something similar if there wasn't so much attention um, on me. And, you know, he had set up meetings with Noam Chomsky after coming back from Iraq. I mean, he was uh, he was one of the smartest people I, I've, I've met. He's getting his master's in history.
1: Can you explain the story of what happened to Pat? Uh, it's tragic story one that was manipulated by the bush administration but also is intimately intertwined with your story right
2: yeah the u.s they didn't know what to do with me i was expecting to go to jail the big army i got called down to formation i was expecting this to be the day that i was going to jail uh and i was told that pat tillman had been killed in an enemy ambush he had died a hero um and uh i went back up to my room overwhelmed you know this is the guy who kind of I was actually holding on to on a certain level, Um, you know, and you know, I didn't know what to do. Uh, I called back down to formation the next day. They said, pack your bags. Um, You're leaving the military. I was kind of shocked. I was not expecting that. Um, You know, I go back to Montana. I find out that the reason they had let me out of the military, I called the inspector general because there was a bunch of other stuff that the military had done um, while I was there, and basically they had been covering up pat tillman's death he didn't die in an enemy ambush he didn't die you know <clears throat> fighting um but he was killed by his own soldiers and the cover-up went all the way up to at least cheney uh, rumsfeld and cheney but probably bush too
1: and w- do you have any sense of was this purposeful it was accidental i mean what was the what was the story that was covered up
2: well, the, the the fact that he was the poster boy for the war on terror, the U.S. military was trying to make him into that. Like, if Pat Tillman could give up $3.6 million, you could certainly join the military. Um, I think there was a lot of trigger-happy rangers. I think it's not known exactly what happened. Um, to, you know, and it's still probably up in the air. I'm, I, I think it could have just been trigger-happy. I, I'm not 100% sold that it was intentional, but they did burn his uniform. They did burn his diary. Um, so it's very suspicious stuff around the situation, but what we do know is that his death was covered up all the way to the highest
1: levels. And we have to, uh, move on soon here, but you wrote a book about, uh, what you did sort of inspired by, or, or in memory of Pat Tillman upon returning to the United States, right? You walked around the country. Uh, can you explain what you did and what you wrote about in in your book about this
2: yeah I just walked across the country to try to raise the 3.6 million dollars that Pat had given up I was back in an office I was like really I had a really hard time kind of talking to my family who was kind of right-wing Catholic they didn't want to hear about my story I had a hard time talking looking people in the eye I just had to kind of get away and kind of do something Um, and so I walked across the U.S. largely keeping the story to myself Um, and then when I got home after an amazing journey, which I could talk for days about, um, you know, I still wasn't telling my whole story, but I decided to retrace my steps via history books after I got back, and I'd walked where Nat Turner had a slave uprising. I'd walked where Ida B. Wells wrote her anti-lynching papers and the San Patricio Battalion, refused to fight the Mexicans in the Mexican-American War, and these were war resistors of a different kind, um, and I wanted to tell their story, and that's what I wrote about, you know, excerpted in my book as I talked about me walking across the country, kind of developing the courage to um speak out against um what the US military had been doing around the world in my own story.
1: So this is uh the book is called Worth Fighting for and uh it's published by Haymarket Books where you work a left-wing publisher that's based here. And before we move on, can I just ask so we're we're covering a lot of ground uh very quickly in your story because unfortunately we don't have a ton of time, but you go from Army Ranger, resistor uh walking across the country for Pat Tillman to socialist how do you end up becoming a socialist Before it was cool, I
2: guess. (laughs) You know, I had my experience. I looked at the American flag, and I assumed that this was something that I should be proud of, and that the U.S. fought for freedom and democracy around the world. I saw firsthand that wasn't the case. I think I picked up a Stephen Kinzer book, Overthrow, and saw how many interventions the U.S. had that were completely opposite of, you know, the cause of freedom and democracy. And I started to get, you know, one thing led to another, and then you're like, wow, then— you know, of course, you follow, read people's history of the United States or something. And then um, meet people at a printer's row and I, you know, become a socialist. And so the rest is history.
1: Uh, you have, a, you have a, a long and storied and interesting life. So we, we need like a couple hours dedicated to you, I think. Um, but let's move on and then we'll come back to some of those uh, stories. So, Sarah, you have an, uh, an article in this issue about uh the various uh democratic candidates for president in 2020 and where they stand on these kinds of uh imperialist wars that rory was just describing having fought himself in um so can you you know we don't we don't have to go through you you give a profile of basically the major democratic candidates all of them uh for president and their record on War, which uh, for uh, basically all of them is uh, extremely bad. Spoiler alert. Um, can you talk a little bit about how? I mean, you know, Rory was Rory fought during the War on Terror and at its height, right when it started. We are now 18 years later, still enmeshed in these wars, and especially in, in Afghanistan and elsewhere. Uh, so, can you talk about where these where these candidates stand on these? kinds of issues and sort of the general issue of how Democrats are treating war in the 2020 primaries?
3: Yeah, I would be happy to. It's not a very pretty picture. Um, so as far as how Democratic candidates are treating war in the election cycle, um, they are hoping people don't really pay much attention to it at all. Um, save Bernie Sanders, who has sort of made, um, Anti-war positions and anti-militarism more his issue. Um, something that I'll get into. His record is actually inconsistent, but of all of the major Democratic candidates, um, he's far and away the strongest when it comes to um, anti-war positions. Um, but it's actually, you know, it's incredibly frustrating because here we are at a time when we have this powerful left. We're debating. Uh, left proposals that are really exciting. Um, Everyone who's running for candidate has to say where they stand on Medicare for All, on the Green New Deal. Um, Ideas like those are taking center stage, yet in this environment, attention to war and militarism is not um, really happening at all, Um, which is really, really unfortunate because, as Micah mentioned, we live in the biggest... Military empire that has ever existed in all of human history. Um, 800 military bases around the world, each of those bases doing specific harm to those specific communities, undermining self determination, um, spreading environmental poison. And the president is, you know, thanks to the roles of the Obama administration, the George W. Bush administration, and other minist- administrations before them. War is the area where presidents have the most power to act without Congress. I mean, here we are, you know the war in Yemen is now the world's worst humanitarian disaster. Um, that was launched by Obama unilaterally, or rather, US participation in that war was launched unilaterally. Um, that was never approved. The, the bombing campaigns against Iraq and Syria, um, those were all presidential decisions. Um, so this is incredibly high stakes. Um, you know, the U.S. is about 4% of the population of the world. The U.S. military impacts the entire world. People who are in the crosshairs of bombs, of base expansions, of covert CIA ops, they do not get to vote for president, yet they are impacted by the U.S. And so out of solidarity with all of those people, um, you know, I think it would be really great if the left could sort of force this issue a little bit more. Um, and I know you asked about sort of the specific candidates, and my, my nutshell summary is that um, Kamala Harris, Biden, and Buttigieg um, all track pretty closely with the, the center of a war hawkish Democratic Party. Um, I am... I think we're all very familiar with Biden's shortcomings, that he played an instrumental part in getting Democrats on board for the 2003 invasion of Iraq, that he has a career of supporting Israel. Can I just um, interrupt
1: real quick? So you, on that question, for example, in these times published a piece about Biden's record in Iraq, which I did not know the extent of. I mean, this guy, like, was, he was like the go between, he, he was a key key player for the Bush administration in sort of selling the war to the Democrats, Right. I mean, like, he's not just, he didn't just, like, sign off on something. He was an enthusiastic backer of the Iraq War.
3: Yeah, and he's been lying about that as of late. Um, it's not always totally clear when he's lying and when he's having trouble recalling, but but either way, um, he played a lead role in sort of driving the march to war. And, you know, my position is that anyone who has a role in orchestrating the mass killing of a million people should probably just spend the rest of their life begging for forgiveness and trying to atone and definitely not be seeking the highest office in the United States. Maybe should
1: be in jail. I don't know. War crime, something like that. 500,000 people dead. I don't know. I mean, he's just like, he, the way he talks about it now, he's like, yeah, made a mistake. You know, sometimes in life you make mistakes.
3: Well, and you know, that's the thing is um, these kinds of mass scale atrocities should be uh, not to mix Metaphors, but nuclear for um, anyone who's a politician, but they're not. Like, you can just sort of say, whoops, sorry about that, or just not say anything at all and then get on with your life. And the thing that drives me totally nuts is that people just don't get pressed on these things. Um, So, I want to talk a little bit about Kamala Harris because I think that she is someone whose hawkishness has really flown under the radar. Um, so one thing to know about her is that she is very close to AIPAC at a time when it's actually a little less politically palatable to be close to APAC than it has been in the past.
1: And for those who don't know APAC, can you explain?
3: Oh, AIPAC is a right-wing lobby organization that's aligned with the administration of Netanyahu. Um, it advocated for the invasion of Iraq. It av- advocated for undermining the nuclear deal with Iran. It cheerleaded for the, you know, Israel's war on Gaza in 2014. The list goes on and on. But they're a right-wing lobby shop. So
1: advocates for sort of the most bellicose uh, pro-Israel policies, and which tends then means you know anti-Palestinian, anti-Iranian, you know all
3: that. Yeah, pro-Israel and pro-U.S. empire. Um, and so um, you know at a time. So right now it's actually less palatable to be associated with APAC. That's for a lot of reasons. One of them is you know, shifts in the base of the Democratic Party, Um, polls show that the base is actually becoming more pro-Palestinian, but also because of Netanyahu's sort of open alliance with the Trump administration, but even within this climate, um, so, you know, Kamala Harris, she spoke at the AIPAC conference in in 2017, in 2018 gave an off-the-record talk, and then in 2019, when um, all of the presidential hopefuls were pledging that they weren't going to go to AIPAC, um, except for Biden, he hadn't declared at the time. Um, Kamala Harris said, oh, I'm skipping too, but then she just hosted AIPAC members in her office a few weeks later. Um, and so her alliance with AIPAC, it's not like some theoretical academic concern. It actually has translated into concrete policy. Um, she actually has boasted about this at an APAC conference But the first resolution that she co-sponsored as a senator um, was to combat so-called anti-Israel bias at the United Nations, and it was introduced by Marco Rubio. Um, So that's just one thing that she did. Um, But another thing that I think we should be really concerned about, and this is something that I also think really flies under the radar and deserves more attention, is her fear-mongering towards the peace process with North Korea. So North and South Korea are still technically at war. It's been about 70 years. The U.S. is still officially a party to that war. Um, And people in Korea desperately want an end to that war. They want family reunification. They want de-escalation. And we have a president who, on the one hand, can sometimes show a strange affection for you know various heads of state, depending on the mood he's in that day, but on the other hand, has threatened uh, North Korea with total nuclear annihilation. Um, he's very erratic, and threats like that, those aren't theoretical. In the Korean War from 1950 to 53, um, the U.S. killed, depending on who you ask, between 10 and 20% of North Korea's population, so those threats are not idle threats. Um, and we've just seen... Um, Kamala Harris just do a lot of sort of fear mongering saying like oh when we participate in talks uh, that's cozying up to a dictator and that's been one of her real lines of attack Um, and I think that that's really dangerous because I think she should listen to South Koreans who overwhelmingly want an end to that war and who don't have the luxury of choosing who the negotiating parties are so I don't want to give Kamala Harris all the attention um I also want to talk about Pete Buttigieg, who I also think is a war hawk who flies under the radar. Um, So he has this amazing ability to speak in empty philosophical bromides and people buy it. And it's so weird. In June, he gave this big foreign policy speech. um, And if you actually read what he said in the speech, um, it's very nefarious. He calls for... Um, deterrence against China. He calls for continued counterterrorism missions in Afghanistan. He calls for a, quote, isolating dictatorship in Latin America. Um, these are all sort of winks and nods to the national security establishment. Um, he does call for appeal for an appeal of the 2001 AUMF. That's a Uh, piece of legislation that has been used to justify the war in Afghanistan and many wars since. Um, But that's not necessarily a progressive stance because there are actually people on the right who want that repealed because they want it to be more expansive and they think it's too limited. Um, So I read this horrible speech and I was like, oh wow, people must really know now that he's a total hawk. But then I looked on Vox.com and the headline is like, Buttigieg out in the lead um, offering progressive solutions you know giving bernie sanders a run for his money and then it's all about how he wants to repeal the aumf um just one other thing i want to say about buddha judge is he um not only worked for but to this day continues to defend mckinsey and company they are a super evil uh global management consulting firm they like they orchestrate mass layoffs and things like that they also um their clients include the Saudi government, the Department of Defense. At the same ha- time he defends them, he's not very open about what he actually did for them. Um, and then the last thing I'll say is that in May 2018, he went on a delegation to Israel with the American Jewish Committee, and then afterwards came back and did a bunch of interviews on their podcasts, which you can go find, where he says things like, Israel offers a national security model for the U.S. to emulate um more recently he's changed his tune a little bit for example in the um foreign policy speech that i just mentioned he um you know made some statements about human rights problems in israel it's just really hard for me to trust someone who like just a year prior was going on a speaking circuit about um, how we should be, you know, the U.S. Army should be just like the IDF.
1: Can I uh, read, I assume you're going to be talking about Elizabeth Warren next, and if, if you don't mind me reading the first sentence of your section on Elizabeth Warren, the Democratic Party is so skewed to the right that it takes little to distinguish oneself as progressive on militarism, yet Massachusetts Senator Elizabeth Warren has failed to clear this low bar.
3: Yeah, so, you know, I want to be fair and say that she's better than Buttigieg, Harris, and Biden, but everything she's good at, Sanders is also good at, and there are things that she's pretty bad at that Sanders is much better at, while he is definitely imperfect, and he also actually needs a lot of pushing. So just a few things to say about Warren. Um, So she started off when she was in the Senate being pretty pro-Israel, and then has since honed that down a little bit, and there are signs that she might be moving a little bit. Um, but in 2014, during Israel's vicious uh, you know, bombing assault on Gaza, she, she really praised it. And she's been historically close to AIPAC, going to local chapter meetings. Um, in 2016, she signed an apac sponsored letter um, urging Obama to veto UN Security Council resolution um, condemning Israeli settlements. Uh, Sanders did not sign that letter. Um, But like I said, there are signs that her positions are improving a little bit. Um, So in November 2017, she signed a a letter calling on Netanyahu um, not to destroy a Palestinian and Bedouin village. And there are other things she's done um, that have shown she might be moving a little bit. There's one thing that I think really, really distinguishes her from Sanders and that sort of shows how she's tacking with the center of the Democratic Party So in July 2017, there were two pieces of legislation. One of them bundled sanctions against Iran, North Korea, and Russia together, and then the other imposed sanctions against Iran. She voted yes to both of those, and Sanders was the only person in the Senate who caucuses with the Democrats to vote no to both of those. Um, Harris also voted yes to both of those. Um, So I think that's really important. Um, and then just another thing is that she's been slower to sign on to key legislation preventing wars. Um, so she did sign on to legislation to prevent unauthorized use of force against Venezuela, but she did it two and a half months behind sanders and if you know if you're someone who's Agitating, trying to get this legislation passed. The question of when someone signs on is incredibly important. And she was slow on that front. She, she did co-sponsor legislation to prevent war against North Korea around the same time as Sanders, so she gets credit for that. And I will say that her her uh, record on Yemen has been solid. She has voted the right way. Um, however, she has not been as vocal as strong of a supporter for ending the war on Yemen that Sanders has been
1: um, Yeah, we have a couple minutes left do you want to talk about bernie's record?
3: Sure, so my position on Bernie is that um, while I think that he's cut from an entirely different cloth than all of these other people that I just mentioned, um, it would be a real mistake to view him as where the left pole should be when it comes to war and militarism, and I say that because he has done something. To that are very bad and pretty inexcusable, and we have to reckon with that. So just a few things about his record. Um, so I think a lot of people know he protested the war in Vietnam. In 74, he called for the abolition of the CIA. He was a vocal opponent not only of Reagan's dirty wars, but also of the San- proponent of the Sandinista Revolution. You're
1: moving on really quickly. He called for the abolition of the CIA. That's badass. I would like that to come back. Well, to the well actually... Trail.
3: Actually, that was, that was somewhat in the mainstream of liberal thought at the time.
1: You and need to make that <laughs> into, like, Medicare for all. Like, Pete Buttigieg coming out for the abolition of the oh, CIA. Oh, yeah.
3: That's the slogan we need. Oh, and, you know, since we're talking about the CIA, I do want to say that right now we're talking about uh, war, but, quote, foreign policy encompasses a lot of things that we're not talking about. It encompasses covert CIA operations. It encompasses climate policy, Trade policy, so I just want to have that little caveat stuck in there. However, he so he opposed the Gulf War, um, but he also called for economic sanctions on Iraq um, as an alternative to military intervention. As we all know, those sanctions were absolutely devastating and killed many people. The estimates vary widely, but a lot of people say at least um, 500,000 Iraqi children. And then in 1998, he backed two pieces of legislation saying that it should be the official policy of the U.S. government to remove Saddam Hussein from power. Um, He was a very vocal opponent of the Iraq War. Um, He really fought against it. However, he did support the 2001 authorization for use of military force in Afghanistan, um, which has been used to justify a host of other wars of aggression since. So I want to talk a little bit about his positions on Israel-Palestine. So this is an area where, you know, it's funny, the the bar is so low that you really don't have to do much to distinguish yourself, and he really has distinguished himself, but it's really not enough, and he needs to be pushed. Um, I think a lot of us remember 2016 when he um, sort of broke with political orthodoxy and said that I'm not going to the AIPAC conference, and then he did his own speech instead. Um, Now we're seeing that he was actually probably a trendsetter because now a lot of people are skipping AIPAC. However, as recently as 2017, he did sign a letter, um, along with Warren and Harris, um, claiming the UN has a bias against Israel, Um, And he has also said that he does not support BDS, the Boycott Boycott Divestment Sanctions Movement. It's a Palestinian-led movement. However, he has opposed legislation criminalizing it. So in 1988, going way back, as mayor, he condemned Israel's first intifada practice of breaking the bones of Palestinian youth. One thing that you see with Sanders is that when he talks about injustices against Palestinians, he uses... um, Strong moral terms in a way that you just don 't often see u s politicians doing, um, however, he has often done that within the confines of a two state solution um, and also at times making nods to sort of responsibility on both sides. so I just want to be really honest that I think this is an area where he 's getting better but could also be pushed um, i want to I want to give him credit where credit is due and say that in the last several years, he really has staked out much stronger positions. Um, he he has vocally supported the Korean peace process. That's really important. Um, for the most part, with maybe a few exceptions, he hasn't got sucked into sort of the, the fear-mongering over Russia or this idea that we have to be more confrontational. Or to put it differently, he's done a better job of resisting that than others have. Um, but he's really led on trying to end the Yemen war, um, introducing legislation, fighting for it, um, going behind the scenes, trying to get people on board. Um, and I think that he, I, I do, I do think that he ha- that it's fair to say that he's staked out better positions.
1: It seems like he has a core anti-imperialist mindset or principle about him that he sometimes lives up to, sometimes fails to live up to but none of these other people would think of themselves as that way none of the other democratic candidates have anything anywhere close to that i mean
3: right? you know it's hard to say what's in his heart i don't i don't know but you know i will say that he has done things that are defiant of the status quo one thing i left out is that he opposed the cold war he was an advocate for peace with the soviet union at a time that that was an unpopular position um, but, you know, I will say, you know, I honestly feel that his positions on war and militarism, while definitely stronger than the other candidates, aren't quite as um, left or as solid as his domestic positions. And I do think that this this is the area that he really needs to be pushed because um, being against imperialist wars, you know, is perfectly consistent with his railing against inequality and racism and his calls for for no one to die because they can't afford health insurance or because their health insured denies them payment, you know, that this idea that there there is a ruling class that is perpetrating um, harm and systematic violence and that that needs to stop that, you know, the natural the natural conclusion is that what well, we should oppose um, the horrific things that the U.S. is doing all over the world
1: want to talk for a minute uh based on the things that both of you have said uh so you know rory you just described your uh experience moving from being a soldier to resisting war and sarah you're laying out the prospects for what is allegedly the uh, left-wing party uh in this country that's uh pretty shitty when it comes to uh not bombing everyone uh, all the time so the obvious question is is about rebuilding an actual anti war movement in this country. Now, Rory, you uh, Alex Press, the author of the profile of you, writes about some of your counter military recruitment work. That seems like uh, an important facet of uh, of of this. Both, I guess, both making sure that kids don't, you know, especially poor kids of color, don't get sucked into the military because they ha- don't have other choices. But also, uh, she. Quotes you in the in the piece saying that like soldiers themselves can be won over to the anti-war movement. I mean, you just mentioned that there were plenty of people who you knew who were disillusioned with what you guys were doing in Afghanistan. The, and and the flip side of that is that if the left doesn't organize those people, uh, you know, there's a long history in this country of of the right doing that. Whether it's the American Legion being a sort of like uh, you know shock troops of you know, fighting, uh, fighting the left uh, in this country or, you know, Vietnam vets who came home and and joined like white supremacist movements after Vietnam. So can you talk a little bit about both of those things uh, briefly about the counter military recruitment and, and this need to, to, uh, you know, make a pitch to uh, veterans uh, from the left?
2: Sure, um, so right now, there are more than ten thousand recruiters kind of roaming the hallways across the country, trying to send you know america 's youth off to one of the eight hundred military bases around the world they 're working with the seven eight hundred million dollar a year uh, advertising budget, and that 's to say nothing of the movies and the video games and all that type of stuff. Chicago happens to be like the epicenter for military recruiting with more than I think 9,500 kids signed up for the junior uh, JROTC, Junior Reserve Officer Training Corps. Um, 50% of those kids are Latinx, uh, 45% are uh, African American. Um, So the the U.S. military is really targeted kind of uh, the most, I think, most of that happens in the west side and the south side. I think they look for kids with the least amount of options after graduation and some of the most marginalized people in society. Um, So I think pushing back against that is really, really important. I've done my best to go into these schools and not finger wag at these kids saying don't sign up for the military, but just go in with a critical mindset and know that, you know, I know who are can't leave their basement uh, because they went and signed up for a war and killed people for a cause that they didn't understand. Um, and there is nothing worse. It's you'd rather lose your limbs than go kill an innocent person because you know, unlike Call of Duty, the video game, you know, you can't turn off war uh, when you leave. So it's um, I think really important to figure out how to get these kids. Um, you know, at least the other side that the military is not showing. Um, and we could talk a ton about that because I think it's really an overlooked issue but in re- and really critical. The other question was uh, soldiers after uh, getting out of the military. I, like myself, a lot of soldiers go to the military buying into the propaganda. I want to be, you know, fight for freedom and democracy. They haven't developed a worldview uh, necessarily other than what the U.S. government has kind of pushed down their throats. And they are very vulnerable when they get out of the military. Many of them, like me, feel deflated, but they need to kind of take. Advantage of you know the the back slapping the 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 small amounts of benefits that they get um, And not speak out publicly about what they saw when they were overseas For fear of risk of being alienated and you know not getting that job um, And not being able to take advantage of some of the benefits also It's very scary in such a hyper military society to speak out against the military But a lot of these soldiers are um disgruntled and would love to hear or find a support group of some sort to come back to and if i if they felt like they're was that, I think they would, number one, be able to relate that story more, and also soldiers in the military, there were 40,000 war resistors between uh, 2005 and 2012 that I know of. That's a a big number of people, but you don't hear many of those those people um, because they were quiet about it when they came back, and I think you need support networks to give people the confidence to do this, and this will get into the minds of the kids whose only experience of what is happening overseas is through video games the you know movies and and propaganda
1: so counter-military recruiting is a central piece of of fighting you know the people who become essentially cannon fodder for the u.s military as well as organizing uh, veterans i mean they would both be part of a broader anti-war movement in this country which i think we all of course agree need to uh, rebuild especially right now at a time when uh, we are extremely close to a war in Iran, for example, getting involved in a war in Iran. Um, and uh, Sarah, I wonder if you could talk about your, your thoughts on this. I mean, I, for a long time, I on, on a separate issue, on on the environment, for example, and climate change, I was very despondent about our ability to stop climate change because I felt like even though we could see, obviously climate change is happening, it's going to be cat- catastrophic People associate it with the kind of finger wagging that you just mentioned. Uh, you know, the, the people don't—they they think that you're going to like impose some kind of new austerity on them. They're going to say it's your fault that the planet is burning. And so there was it, there was no way to sort of build a mass constituency where people could see their own self interest in saving the planet from climate change. But then the Green New Deal came along, and now we have a way of 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 threading that needle and saying like we're going to both stop climate change and. You're going to lead a better life with a you know a job you know uh, installing solar equipment whatever we're going to we're going to like have a, a high paying union job and whatever it's not going to be austerity it's going to be like a good life for you and a good you know, a planet to live on and so I feel like we have to figure out how to do that on some level for war and imperialism right because it can feel like. Somebody's saying, "Don't you know about the horrors that are happening in Yemen?" Which is true, of course. The situation in Yemen is a humanitarian, just catastrophe. It's just, it's just horrific to, you know, even dip your finger into, dip your toe into seeing what's happening there. Uh, but most Americans don't want to be sort of like feel like, you know, screaming at them about about that. So how how do we change that? How do we, uh, you know, make an anti-war movement that can that can appeal to people on that level and that that can actually be effective in Stopping the, the myriad horrors of, of whether it's a, a new war in Iran or whatever any of these 800 military bases are doing around the country or all of the stuff that the U.S. war machine is doing.
3: You know, I think it's really important to popularize this idea with the resurgent left that if you are pushing for domestic gains, um, if you're pushing for Medicare for All if you're pushing for the Green New Deal, both of which are really critical, and also the Green New Deal is also international, um, but you're not calling for an end to U.S. bases, bombing campaigns, ground wars, drone wars, um, then you're building your gains on the backs of other people. Then that's chauvinist. So this idea that domestic gains without international solidarity um, are being built on the backs of other people I think is really important. And I think that there is the space for that. You know, we're, we're living at a time that is both really scary and really exciting, um, but we're seeing these popular left movements. We're seeing a lot of people openly calling themselves socialists, calling themselves anti-capitalists. And we're seeing an outpouring of solidarity um, for the UAW strike right now. Um, these are incredibly exciting times. But if we don't, inculcate that movement with a strong sense that that we we don't want we don't want to gain if it's at someone else's expense um then i think we could fall into a trap that the u.s has fallen into before um anytime i hear someone say um you know i'm i'm a big supporter of elizabeth warren but but her foreign policy kind of sucks but she's really got on other things like it really, really bothers me because that's the area where she would have the most unilateral power, unfortunately, because of the war-making powers of the president. And it's not just a small detail. We're all connected in the very broadest sense. The, the poor working people, the exploited, the impoverished, the oppressed, all over the world have a stake in each other's lot improving, um, I think is very important.
1: Yeah, uh in we have an article by Megan Day in the issue Elizabeth Warren's lean green fighting machine and it almost reads like a parody like something from the Onion like she has this proposal that is not to, you know, wind down the 800 military bases that the US has around the planet uh but she wants to green them. Uh, yeah. <laughs> uh so, you know, that's the kind of thing we could end up with with a with a carbon-neutral way of, like, mowing down civilians in the Middle East or something.
3: Yeah, and, you know, for I, I think we have to have really high standards. You know, I think we should say um, only Medicare for all is Medicare for all. Not medicare for all ish or medicare for all asterisks except blah 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 no only medicare for all is medicare for all and i think we need to say the same thing about war and imperialism like like no the the only way the only form that justice can take is chip away at that military empire i think i'm quoting alex press right now and that's a line from her profile of you that she wrote um and I think we have to have really high standards, and and for that reason, you know, I've spent this whole time talking about how Sanders is the best of all these people. But I think for the same reason, we need to we need to hold his record to scrutiny too, and demand the same of him. Uh, and we need to we need to absolutely not let Kamala Harris or Buttigieg or Warren or anyone sort of dodge scrutiny for what their record is. It's not a small thing. We're talking about the world, the whole world.
1: I would say that. You know, we've been we've had a pretty bleak conversation. Anytime you talk about U.S. imperialism, it gets pretty bleak. Um, But we are in a moment where, as has been mentioned, we have this rising left in this country, where Bernie Sanders, despite the many shortcomings that he has had on this topic, does seem to me to be the most, uh, the best candidate on anti-imperialism and anti-war that we've seen. I don't know, in a very long time in this country, who's a major presidential candidate who actually stands a chance of winning, one who will, again, require a lot of pushing, but one who uh, there's a lot of potential there, especially if there is some of that pushing. So it's, uh, it's, it's rough out here, but this is, we, we have the best chance that we've had in a while to, to try to uh, build the kind of movement that we all think that needs to be built to roll back the, the war machine. So um, I hope that you all will buy a copy of this issue. Thank you, all everyone, for coming out. The Vast Majority is produced by Sarah Hurd at Studio 10 in Chicago. You can subscribe to The Vast Majority and to all the Jacobin Radio podcasts on iTunes or Stitcher. And you can always read us at jacobinmag.com.